This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we talk mix and max with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. The workplace has changed in the pandemic, but has the toxic workplace? Ruth Ann Weeks, cultural change strategist, joins me to discuss. There's lots we can't do, but there is one thing we're doing more of. And also, we're talking sex and why sexual health education is important for everyone across Canada. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. We have uh, a voice that you have heard many times before. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is assistant professor in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba and holds a Canada research chair in the molecular pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses. He is also advancing the research in COVID-19. Thank goodness. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk, who joins me on the line. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing? Uh, doing all right. I look at where we're, you know, about five or six days away from uh, from making our move back to Winnipeg after being in Saskatoon for a year. So, you know, kind of a, a rough time to be to be going back to the province. Um, but it, you know, it, it's tough. I mean, certainly, uh, I think watching the trends uh, in Manitoba, you know, kind of the the worst case scenario is well upon the province. And um, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is, I think there's a lot of fingers that are going to be pointed back and forth. Um, but we've got to get through this. And uh, I, I think we have to put some of that aside to try and figure out uh, how to save some lives and, and uh, save the long-term health of some people that, uh, that are going to end up in the hospital over the next few weeks. That's right. Many places across Canada are seeing some improvement. They're seeing the reduction in the number of COVID cases, a reduction in the number of deaths and hospitalizations. But we must remember that there are many parts of Canada where this pandemic is still uh, very much alive and well and surging and impacting people's lives. Yeah, How... and it's, you know, it... Go ahead. I would just say, go ahead. Go ahead, Marty. Oh, I was just going to say, how hopeful are you that Canada has administered more than 20 million COVID-19 vaccine doses, according to the CDC? Um, and uh, we have about 48%, 48.42% of the population has received at least one dose, and only 4.12% have received both doses. Yeah, and, and you know, here here's the crux, right? So, listen, the, the the high percentage that we're seeing in regards to the first dose um, certainly is is welcome, right? We we know that Canada struggled a little bit behind uh, other countries, well, a lot behind other countries with the initial rollout, and I think now that we have a better appreciation that the vaccines protect from severe disease and protect from infection, um, you know, I think we're we're quite happy. The the first dose gives some protection and and it certainly helps with getting that transmission. Uh, you know, uh, at least down, a, at least to, to some degree. But the big question now is going to be, when do we start moving those second doses? And I think that is a difficult decision to make because now you have to, you know, basically kind of reprioritize where you're distributing those vaccines. Um, and there, again, there, there's no formula for, for any of this, for the people, you know, for the epidemiologists and for the public health officials that are making these decisions, there isn't some algorithm that you just plug in the data and it tells you, okay, now switch over, start doing second doses. 
um, what we are learning. And I think that's the unfortunate reality is that, you know, we're, we're trying to figure this out on the fly and also appreciate that, you know, that the situation is, is very different in, in depending on what region of Canada you're in. So you can't necessarily use a blanket strategy for the entire nation because of those differences as well. Absolutely. So a lot of people are concerned uh, that they're not getting their second dose for 16 weeks. And in fact, um, I've heard about it of a number of people, especially young people, people in their 20s in particular, who are traveling down to the U.S. They're staying in Florida for a month. They're getting both their vaccines and they are returning uh, to Canada and, and hence still having to, uh, in spite of having to do the two-week quarantine, but their, their minds are being put at ease. Uh, they're tired of waiting is what I've heard uh, for the first and second vaccine. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, you know, I, I appreciate the frustration. I, you know, again, I'm, you know, somebody who works with COVID and still only has the, the, the first dose, which, which came a few weeks ago. Um, you know, so there, there's that aspect for me where I look at it and say, we have a lot of people that, that are in my situation that work daily with the virus and, and don't have uh, necessarily full, uh, you know, full vaccinations, which is you know, always concerning. But there is that aspect we want to see people getting fully vaccinated that are in the highest risk groups. Um, but the pandemic has changed. And I think that is something that we're still coming to terms with that, you know, what we saw in 2020 in regards to, uh, you know, to the people that were being overrepresented in hospitals had started to change. And, and certainly we're seeing younger age groups and certainly, uh, you know, non-healthcare um, essential workers that, that are front facing the public on a daily basis that are really taking the, um, you know, the direct hit from this, uh, from this wave of the pandemic. And, that's where suddenly there are those questions that are being raised of saying, not only should we be, you know, do we maybe change that uh, that 16 week um, uh, split between the two doses and try and shorten that up, but also do we start to reprioritize uh, where we're trying to get those second doses distributed first? So I think you're going to see some movement on that, and certainly uh, as you know, of course, as more data comes in and we're getting more vaccine coming in, I think you're going to start to see things speed up. It's just unfortunately we are at the behest of, of getting vaccine. We certainly are. And, you know, during the pandemic, it seemed that the U.S. and our closest neighbor um, was doing, you know, very poorly, quite frankly, in terms of numbers of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, the impact on their healthcare system, which is very different from Canadian healthcare system. But they seem to be rocking it with the vaccines. More than 45% of American adults are now fully vaccinated, according according to the CDC data. And um, this increased COVID-19 vaccination system has helped boost the reopening efforts. And, you know, there's about a week left before a return to a pre-pandemic normal is about to occur on on their their long weekend, the Memorial Day weekend, uh, May 29th. It's it's shocking, isn't it? And, and I think to mm-hmm. me, that that's the part that I keep having to kind of remind myself of is listen, we, we remember in the fall time and certainly, uh, you know, kind of latter end of 2020, um, you know, we kept on looking to the south and saying that's what, what we don't want to end up like, um, you know, for, for all the, the limitations and certainly all the mistakes that were maybe made with the initial vaccine rollout in the U.S., they've been able to get doses out. I mean, part of that is because they have manufacturing capacity, certainly, um, and they were able to get, uh, get their hands on more doses. Um, but it is something that I think we maybe should be looking at as far as the future for, for Canada. Um, we are not there yet. 
we certainly are on the trajectory to get there. So we, we have to keep working towards that. Um, but, uh, but we have to appreciate that, that it's going to take some effort right now. Ontario is doing better. Alberta is arguably starting to turn a corner. BC is doing all right. The Atlantic provinces and Quebec are doing well. Manitoba, well, Saskatchewan as well is doing good. Manitoba is, is the area right now that, you know, it's not going to end tomorrow. It, this is going to be an extended, uh, an extended, you know, kind of peak on this wave. And uh, they're going to be in trouble for, for a little bit yet. They certainly are. What do you think our summer is going to look like in, in general across the country? Do you think that there will be larger gatherings outdoors? Do you think brides will be able to have their dream weddings? Uh, do you think that uh, we'll have a little bit more of a, of a uh, normal summer, if you will? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's almost there, right? It was the, the much smarter doctor can retract myself for talking about this today. Um, you know, Saskatchewan has weathered the storm quite well through this wave. They, they had some problems with B117 in the southern end of the province. Vaccinations rolled out. They got vaccines out to, uh, to younger demographics fairly quickly. And, you know, we're, we're not seeing, a, you know, those massive spikes in cases. So I, I think there is that kind of optimism, again, of saying the weather's turning. Uh, people are going to be outdoors more. We're not seeing a lot of transmission in those settings. Yeah, you know, feasibly, I think we will have, or at least this province and others will potentially have a decent summer. Manitoba, I think once they get through this, they will. Um, but, you know, we're, we're talking, again, not about, you know, kind of the end of May or, or early June. It's going to be, you know, like late June, uh, probably into July by the time they're able to get things uh, completely turned around. We have about a minute here. I have a question from a text. Is there any underlying health problems a person could have that would cause a bad reaction from the vaccines? You know, so far, the, the biggest ones that we know are anybody that has pre-existing allergies uh, to any of the ingredients uh, within the vaccines. And, and that's been kind of our biggest concern uh, from square one with what we saw with the initial rollout in the UK. Right. And that's really poly, an, an allergic reaction to polyethylene glycol, which most people don't yes. even know what that is, but it's found in cosmetics and in laxatives. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, no. Um, I, uh, we're going to go to break and I would like to you to stay on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk, because I would like to come back and talk about mixing and matching vaccines. There has been so much talk about mixing and matching in part because Canada may not uh, have enough vaccine, in particular, as it relates to the AstraZeneca vaccine. I have a patient who is who has had an AstraZeneca vaccine, and now his work is taking him to the U.S., and uh, where they don't have the AstraZeneca vaccine, but he'd like to take advantage of getting the second dose. Now, his doctor advised him to get a Pfizer vaccine in the U.S. What are your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> we get into some gray area, right? So, I, you know, part of this is what, what do we assume versus what, what do we know right now? Well, you know, the, the mix and match data certainly is coming out. We, we've seen a little bit in regards to, uh, you know, what, what we kind of call reactogenicity. So how much, how much local reaction do we see uh, at, at the site of inoculation or vaccination uh, in, in people that get the mix and match versus either the two doses? And we're getting some ideas now uh, in, in older populations whether or not we see differences in things like neutralizing antibodies. So the data kind of lines up with, I think, what we had hoped for, which is 
Uh, first of all, we don't see a big increase in, in local reactions. There, there's a little bit of a bump, but not, not an exceeding amount. So it tells us that there certainly is still a reaction, which is good. Um, but also with the antibodies, we do see at least signs of an increase in antibody. Now, whether or not that's sustained, and then, of course, whether or not that relates to protection, um, that's always a question, though. I think we have some data now starting to suggest but yeah, neutralizing antibody levels correlate really well with, with protection. So what does this all mean? Well, it means we don't have that clinical trial data sitting in hand. We'll have it in a few weeks from the UK. But we have quite a bit of data right now that is leaning towards saying that, yeah, you know what, the mix and match strategy, either it's going to work as well as the two doses or potentially even better. And I think that's reassuring for us. It, it doesn't necessarily... Uh, differ from maybe what we would kind of hypothesize in the lab. If you're using two different vaccines, the endpoint of the vaccines is the spike protein. That's what's being presented uh, to your immune system. So in theory, you should get a similar response, whether you mix and match or not. Um, but we always want to see that that cold, hard data to, to reassure us. And I think it's it's going to be coming in uh, exceedingly quickly over the, over the next couple of weeks. And this is actually nothing new. If I'm correct, there was some research in the 90s that um, as it related to the development of vaccines um, in HIV. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the, the Ebola vaccine that recently was licensed in Europe uh, as well, uh, I believe, uses a combination vaccine approach um, where, where they basically have two different uh, two different types of, uh, of components that are in there. So, I, you know, again, it's we're not talking about the kind of the old days of vaccination where you're using live attenuated virus, right? You're, we now are much more specific in, in what we're presenting to the immune system. And in that specificity, there tends to be some overlap. And I think, you know, yes, the, the, the Lego blocks at the start of, you know, of your build is made, are maybe a little bit different. But ultimately, in both cases, you're going to get a house. How you get there is not necessarily as important as the fact that the structure looks the same at the end. And and can people actually get immunity against vaccines? And could this mix and match help to avoid immunity? Yeah, so th- this was always the concern with the adenovirus-based vaccines, right? Was the fact that with an adenovirus that circulate regularly, we they, they tend to be cold-like uh, viruses. Um, there was always this concern that okay, people that had uh, you know strong immune responses in the past adenovirus would they see a decreased immunity? We haven't necessarily seen that. But there was some concern that, oh, well, if people get the first shot um, of, of an adenovirus-based vaccine, then they go back for a booster, will they potentially see a decreased um, uh, you know, immunogenicity or reaction to, to that second dose? Again, the, the data doesn't suggest that from what we've seen with the AstraZeneca trials, um, but those concerns are still there, right? So the mix and match, again, may, may alleviate that. I think the more important thing is it allows us to use more vaccine um, you know, at a quicker pace to being able to get people protected and hopefully get, uh, you know, virus transmission uh, subsided. And what are your thoughts quickly on um, whether we're going to need booster vaccinations in the winter or, or annually, uh, much like the flu? Yeah, you know, I, I think the data is certainly suggestive. We're probably going to see a longer uh, a retention of immunity than maybe what we had appreciated. Um, we probably are still going to need a booster at some point, but I don't think we need to get into this concern right now about, well, six months down the line, am I going to have to be going back in? I don't think we're there. The data has just looked so good so far that I think a lot of people are confident. Now, don't quote me. It could change overnight. Everything else in COVID has. But um, I, I think we actually have quite a bit of optimism with that. We won't quote you, but we do have that recorded. 
<laughs> so okay. we don't have to quote you. <laughs> Dr. Kinderchuk, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. And, and the time just seems to go by so quickly. And uh, the time doesn't pass too quickly with this pandemic. We're into it for, you know, well over a year and looking like we're still going to be uh, suffering its effects for a little while longer uh, before we get back to fully normal uh, life. But um, but we can look to the U.S. for hope. And uh, and I thank you for all the work that you've done as well and for all your contribution to the program and, and, uh, and continued contribution, I hope. Uh, and I want to wish you the best of luck in your move as well. Thank you so much, Maureen. Take care. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Recently, I wrote an article on LinkedIn uh, because I had seen somebody who had gotten a new job and I happened to know the company and I happened to know that uh, there it was a very toxic workplace, that particular company. And I also happened to know that the person who hired her is likely a, a sociopath. She was given a very big job with a fancy title, something she's not qualified to do, which was also one of the hints that I had that she is about to head into the lion's den. And through that article, I met my next guest because somebody connected us. Ruth Ann Weeks is a cultural change strategist and principal consultant at Harmony in the Workplace. She's a change agent whose efforts have helped to bring the importance of an abuse-free work environment to the forefront of public awareness. She's a best-selling author and gifted speaker who delivers a powerful message about today's workplace challenges. Working as a certified resource specialist in the human service sector, Ruth Ann went on to graduate as a human resource manager. She is certified is a certified psychological safety advisor and specializes in diversity and inclusion, workplace bullying, sex, sexual harassment, domestic violence, and mental health in the workplace. I'm delighted to have you on the program, Ruth Ann. How are you? I'm very well, Maureen. Happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, this is a, a subject near and dear to my heart. I, I often say, no matter where I work, and I do a lot of different contracts and consulting, and I go into different companies, but it seems I always find one. I'm, I'm the target quite often of uh, somebody who is a workplace bully or somebody who um, makes it very challenging or promotes a toxic work environment. And, and quite frankly, I have a hard time speaking up. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a physician and, and he said, you, you have a hard time speaking up to this type of person. You're such a good communicator and, you know, you articulate things so well when you're talking and, and he said, I can't believe it. And, and he gave me the courage to speak up uh, so I'm practicing it a little more <laughs> uh, lately, but I find it very, very difficult. But I also find that it's extremely common in the workplace, pandemic or not. What are your thoughts Unfor on workplace bullying? Yeah, unfortunately, you are right, Maureen. It's very prevalent. 45% of Canadian workers report being bullied on the job every week. Um, and, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you. And you're right. It, it is demoralizing. It takes us uh, it takes us back because um, the the good news is that generally speaking, workplace targets, targets of workplace bullying are high functioning. They are, um, you know, type A overachievers, not overachievers, but achievers. You know, they, they're not willing to put up with the toxic status quo. They want to really bring their best to the workplace and contribute in a meaningful way. And sometimes 
those that are less uh, emotionally aware, let's say, or not as confident can see that as a threat. And they act out in ways that uh, sometimes overtly, often covertly, try to discredit the high-functioning employee. Absolutely. I I had a couple of experiences uh, where I was brought in to do some work over a period of time. And I was immediately, the bullying began. I had about an eight week situation a couple of years ago. And the problem was somebody had told this particular person that she could have my position and she could do Mm -hmm. the work, but she wasn't qualified. She didn't have any type of a medical background. And so she wanted the job. And, but she wasn't qualified for it, but somebody, her friend, told her she could have it. And, and so that was why she treated me the way that she did. And, and believe me, it's, it's terrible, you know, to be on the receiving end of that. You, you actually get physical symptoms. You can, you know, your, my heart races. You know, I just, I, I start to think about, you know, why would they say something like that? You know, calling out mistakes in front of six people, you know, yelling it across the room <laughs> and the covert stuff, forget it. That's even worse. But that, but I've had two situations in my career where somebody else wanted my job or actually three, somebody else wanted the job and that was the problem. And that was why I was targeted. I believe, I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. My, I was bullied. I founded my business actually in 2016 after finding myself unexpectedly unemployed, uh, being bullied from my workplace. And I had been brought into a new team and, you know, brought my best to that job. It was my shiny new opportunity, you know, a next, uh, next level in my career path. And I really, you know, wanted to fit in and do my best. And, and it, I very quickly realized it was a very rigid, authoritative work culture. And I wasn't fitting in very well, but what I didn't know until later was that uh, there was a peer director who was covertly bullying me, uh, disparaging my character, uh, telling lies about me, who had been championing for someone else for my position uh, that had been with the organization. And uh, yeah, I got let go from that job within three months. No questions asked, no chance to you know refute anything that was said about me. And I didn't do anything to deserve losing my job. But I had been physically ill as well. I had a, a autoimmune disease that had been dormant for years. It started to flare. And absolutely what's happening in our minds manifests in our body. Ouch. I, I mean, I think your work is, is tremendously important um, because oftentimes people at work will think if they'll go to human resources, but human resources mm-hmm. often isn't um, experienced enough in workplace bullying. They, they work a little bit more for the company. You know, they're more about firing and uh, hiring and firing <laughs> as opposed yeah. to supporting and, and finding out what the truth is. Um, so what are some of the uh, covert ways that uh, bullies perform in the workplace? Um, you know, they'll give someone a wrong meeting time, withhold information that they might need to do their job. I know with me, I uh, had talked about moving some files to archives and got accused of wanting to destroy files. And I mean, that's not what I said at all. So it's a bit of that gaslighting, too, that's happening. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so they'll they'll do things like that. I know for me, 
uh, my bully had the ear of the executive director and, and I didn't have a lot of contact or direct contact access to the executive director. So, uh, you know, just having that relationship, that communication piece that you, you mentioned, it's so key, um, you know, because words matter and, you know, people can easily tell lies if they're bent to do so. And there's very little that the target can do and, and or even be aware of that it's happening. Exactly. How about if they are aware that it's happening? How beneficial is speaking up? Well, that really depends. That is a loaded question because that depends on the organizational culture and whether or not psychological safety is in play. Psychological safety is that ability and freedom to take interpersonal risk in expressing thoughts and opinions and ideas and to go to HR and have that level of trust. And I mean, I hate to say it, but sometimes. HR is part of the problem. Like you mentioned, their their job uh, sometimes primarily is to protect the employer from liability. And they think that the way to do that is to quietly package out the the boat rocker or the, you know, the whistleblower or whatever you want to call it. And and uh, rather than address the issues that are occurring with the with the workplace, they, you know, sometimes they just want to do that, get a non-disclosure agreement signed and, and, you know, consider that as a solution. And really, that's not a solution because it's never uh, examining the, the root cause of what's causing the toxic work environment to begin with. Absolutely. How about speaking up to the bully uh, or the bullying behavior? Because sometimes people just have a, a tendency, you know, they'll might, they might make a, uh, a little threat here or there. And, and how about if somebody says, you know, I'm going to teach you how to treat me, basically, and, and uh, please don't play guessing games with me or please don't threaten my work um, or right. my employment. Um, yeah, you know, how, do how does that go over? Do the bullies back down with that? Because a lot of people are afraid to speak up, myself included. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but well, I will. <laughs> those are those microaggressions, right? You know, that might mm-hmm. they might uh, come across as teasing or tried to be excused, you know, as just, oh, you're too sensitive or whatever. I mean, you know, best practices, if you feel safe to do so, then yes, speak to the bully. Tell them, you know, I don't appreciate what you said. I always say be very specific. Use I language because nobody has any right to tell you what you think or feel is wrong or bad. So I don't like it when you name the behavior, you know, and it makes me feel and name your feeling. Nobody can dispute that, right? Um, So be very specific, use that I language, but then, you know, it's only if you feel safe to do so. And you mentioned sociopath. You know, if, if you're dealing with a sociopath or a psychopath or even sometimes just a narcissist, you know, they might, you're probably not gonna be successful having that conversation, um, you know, because they'll either just tell you what you wanna hear or, you know, they'll tell management what they want to hear and then, you know, just continue on in, the, in their abusive path. But, right. yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, and it really depends on um, the chain of command, what the culture is, what the policies and procedures say, what the level of training is. You know, a lot of people don't really have a clear understanding of what workplace abuse and, and bullying behavior even is. It's so hard because you don't even realize that it's happening to you unless maybe you've had some previous experience with it, but it can, um, 
it, it can just come upon you and you realize oftentimes because you get sick. As you mentioned, you had an exacerbation of an autoimmune disease. What are some of the other symptoms that people who are targets of bullies in the workplace may experience? I knew a fellow who part of his adult life, he just made it his uh, routine to take his blood pressure every day. And he was uh, in municipal politics, a very popular two-term mayor. And, you know, during that period uh, when he was in that position, he was bullied horrifically by members of his council. It didn't matter what the decision was. If it was coming from his side, it was it was a wrong decision. And, and they really made his life difficult. And during that time, his, you know, it showed up in his, in his statistics that his heart, uh, high blood pressure was through the roof. And he's, you know, he's, he's fortunate that he didn't have a cardiac uh, arrest or anything during that time. But I mean, who knows what kind of damage that really did to his heart long term. Um, those are the types of things that can happen. Of course, anxiety, right? Um, you know, when you think about work, you don't even necessarily have to be there. Just be thinking about it. And you're right. You know, a lot of times people don't know if what's happening to them uh, is workplace abuse. So, you know, I have a course called When Work Hurts. And it's to uh, target those people that either are in workplace, you know, it, toxic environments or know somebody that they love who's, you know, just in that kind of situation or, you know, they're not really sure if what's happening to them is abusive or not. And they, you know, they, they have rights. There are laws in place to keep people safe at work and employers have responsibilities to keep people safe at work. And, you know, I'm very passionate about helping them know what those rights are and, you know, how to approach HR from that place of empowerment through that lens of understanding and and what to do if, you know, the employer doesn't do their due diligence. My guest is Ruth Ann Week. She is a cultural change strategist, a certified psychological health and safety advisor at Harmony in the Workplace. Thanks for staying with me, Ruth Ann. Uh, if you have any questions out there, feel free to text me. The number to text is 1-877-399-9898. That's one 877 399-9898. We'd love to hear from you wherever you are in Canada. Um, Ruth Ann, I, we're talking about workplace bullying. I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, you have an event coming up this Thursday. Why don't, why don't you tell the listeners about that before we forget? Oh, yeah, I'm so excited. It's called the Workplace Psychological Safety Symposium, Critical Conversations. And it is a plenary session with six dynamic speakers running from 9 till 2 p.m. Mountain Time. It's a virtual event. You can find tickets uh, on my website, harmonyintheworkplace.com. And we're really going to dig into that critical conversation and keeping people safe at work. So we're going to define what psychological safety is and, and you know, talk about bullying and, and those toxic work environments that can just chip away at, uh, at, the, at a culture and really at the bottom line at the end of the day and give, uh, give employers and stakeholders just really practical tools to implement right away that uh, can help keep people safe at work. We're really excited about it. Good. Best of luck with that. I, I would love to attend myself. I'm. I'm going to try to. I definitely need it. Um, the in in the past, I have experienced workplace bullying, and I I noticed that this particular person had. Uh, he was a people jumper, and he bullied one person after another, and they were mostly women. Um, that he bestowed the worst psychological abuse on. 
Um, many women filed lawsuits against him. Of course, they signed non non-disclosure agreements, so they are not allowed to say anything. But you know, the most interesting thing was that some people he left alone, and it seemed it was those people who did speak up to him. But uh, these bullies often have a solar system of supporters around them. And why is that? Why is it so difficult to speak up when you witness this toxic environment in your workplace? Mm. Well, I think, you know, there's probably, uh, if they're supporters, then, you know, they might just be nasty people themselves. I think a lot of times bystander bullies are just silent, you know, just their head down um, because they don't want to be the next target. You know, sometimes it's easier just to to not engage and be that bystander um, just to avoid, you know, being the next target and and having the the bullying turn on to you. There's something called uh, puppeteer bullying, which is when um, someone in power in a leadership position will instruct others within the organization to pick up on a target. And, uh, you know, mobbing is when a group forms against a, a, a target and, you know, there's lots of different ways that bullying plays out. Um, but, yeah, that, that, you know, a lot of times people just, um, they just put up with it to avoid becoming the target themselves. Absolutely. Now, I wrote an article on LinkedIn because I saw somebody who was announcing their new uh, position, which they're underqualified for. This particular person that I'm thinking about made up positions, and there was a tremendous turnover in their workplace. And if anyone took a look at it, they would see just how many hundreds of people (laughs) have gone through that organization. And, And also the organization doesn't actually do anything. They've raised millions and millions of dollars and they don't have anything at the end of the day. Um, but somebody made a comment on the article that I wrote and you can go to LinkedIn, um, if you would like to read that. Um, and he wrote, as you said, you become the target, very crafty people who are probably sociopaths, hard to come up unscathed from this. People have long-term damage as a result of workplace bullying, correct? Yeah, absolutely. They really can. Sometimes, you know, PTSD, um, you know, sometimes it leads to suicide and it doesn't get any more long-term than that. It, you know, it's, it's really, it's really despicable the way uh, some human beings can treat other human beings. And, you know, I get that sociopath and, and psychopath. I mean, that comes up. I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I know those are disorders. Those are mental illnesses. And, um, you know, they're, they're so conniving and so convincing that it just seems like nothing sticks to them. You know, they're just like Teflon. And, That's right. um, and, and completely manipulative. Absolutely. Um, so I just want you, uh, Ruth Ann, to let the listeners once again quickly, we just have about 30 seconds, uh, know about your event again. Yeah, it's a Workplace Psychological Safety Symposium, Critical Conversations. We're really going to dive into keeping workplaces safe and people safe there. It's on May 27th, running from 9 till 2 virtually. Tickets at harmonyintheworkplace.com, right on my homepage. Thank you so much, Ruth Ann. Really appreciate uh, your contribution to the program. As you know, sexual health is extremely important to me, and I feel it is very important to Canadians as well, which is why I have invited my next guest on. Felicia Gisondi is the founder of a student-run, not-for-profit organization based in Montreal, Canada. It's called Sex and Self. 
Their goal is to provide accessible, comprehensive sexual education to young people across the country. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Felicia. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining me about such an important subject. What is the driving force behind your goal to provide accessible, comprehensive sexual education to young people across this country, especially in a pandemic? Well, I definitely think it all stemmed from my own personal experience and being at the university level and looking at the community that was that I was surrounded by and recognizing that a lot of us had little to no sexual education. Um, And I think it's so important too to start providing this conversation and hosting this conversation to young people, even during a pandemic, because once we get out of this pandemic, people are going to start becoming more sexually active. You know, we're really excited for the post COVID boom and people need to, act in a safe and healthy manner. And I think that our lack of sexual education that's been comprehensive has really, really inhibited us from moving forward in a more positive and enlightening way in regards to just all things sexual health and sexuality. Um, And it's really inhibited us as young people to really feel empowered in our own sexuality. Um, So I really think the driving force was just looking around at the university level and, and feeling like we all had such little information, not only about our own bodies, but about our peers, about topics like consent um, and STI information, and really seeing that huge gap and thinking, I'm at this wonderful university, um, but all these young people, including myself, really have little to no information about our own bodies, and we're all becoming or are sexually active, and we're all on our own, and we're all, you know, dealing with health issues on our own without our parents' help. Um, and we're really not moving forward in a safe and healthy manner. So that's kind of the driving force, and I think it's important inside and outside a pandemic. And uh, I'm excited about the post-pandemic boom as well, and I imagine there Mm. will be a a sexual health boom as well. Excitement and pleasure, those are subjects that are not really discussed at the high school level when sexual health education is delivered to students, are they? No, Um, and that's actually something that's really, really important in our high school outreach curriculum. So providing folks with a pleasure-focused sexual education not only allows them to see sex as something beyond kind of a reproductive duty, but it also allows individuals to recognize sexual assault when it is happening. A lot of Canadians, and actually a recent study in Ontario found that only 29% recognized sexual assault when situational-based scenarios were presented in front of them. So having a pleasure-focused understanding of sexual education really allows students to understand, and young people and anyone essentially, to understand when something's happening to their body, when their boundaries are being crossed and they're not in consensual acts, those are not pleasure-focused situations. And when you have a sexual education curriculum that goes forward with this pleasure-focused understanding, students and young people will recognize when things are being done to their body, is that pleasurable? Am I getting some sexual pleasure out of this experience? Is this uncomfortable? Am I in an unsafe situation? Because a lot of folks, um, unfortunately, when when they're dealing with sexual assault or when they're in that experience, 
um, they don't understand what's fully happening to them. And this particularly happens with young boys, um, especially young boys under the age of 12. So when you go in with this pleasure focus, um, understanding of sexuality and sexual health, it can really be a preventative cause for young people to really have autonomy over their bodies and understand sex beyond just a reproductive duty. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, how do you plan to deliver? This is a, a quite a mighty task you've taken on to educate <laughs> uh, young people across the country. Uh, how do you intend to deliver this education and, and what uh, age level is it targeted toward? So within Sex and Self, we have a few different sectors. Uh, at the Sex and Self level, which is at the university level, we host um, online as of now, but eventually in person again, um, sexual health workshops. Now, these can range from like crash courses. So people who have certain biology or certain um, sexual preferences. So people who are, you know, vulva owners having sex with penis owners will have workshops for those specific communities. We recently had um, a workshop that focused on the trans experience. So just normalizing conversations around sexuality, gender, um, and sometimes even race. Uh, we've had conversations that kind of encompass that. Um, and typically those are very lecture style based. Um, but we are transitioning to program to have university level workshops that focus on sexual pleasure, uh, gaining autonomy, advocating for yourself. Um, so that's part of our programming that will hopefully launch in September. And then at the high school and elementary school level, we actually have university students that get taught um, a curriculum under our Bodies A to Z pilot project that launched this year. And essentially there, we focus on this pleasure-focused, comprehensive, intersectional approach to sexual health. And there, it's actually really lovely because university students get to go into high schools um, and we've expanded to a few elementary schools um, and we're able to teach young students topics beyond just the STI and the family planning method that a lot of high school curriculums tend to touch on. But we do things beyond that, like gender identity. We have lesson plans on queer theory. We also have plans on consent and sexual violence and what those look like. Um, and we do tailor all of these topics to the students themselves. So our audience has been students as young as 12, uh, all the way to 26, 27 year olds in university. That, that is absolutely fantastic. I imagine a lot of kids heading off to university have had such poor education or limited education, either through the school system or through their parents who are uncomfortable about talking about this subject. I'm so happy to have you uh, to deliver this information and to help young people be comfortable about this. And I imagine they may teach their parents a thing or two as well. How can people learn more about sex and self? Where should they go? So you can find us on Instagram at sexandself underscore. You can also find our website at www.sexandself.com. Um, we are actually having a fundraiser for the rest of the month. Um, so all of our links for that fundraiser will be there if you believe in our cause, if, if you believe in comprehensive sex education. Um, and all of our donors will actually be entered into uh, a raffle where we're giving away over $1,500 worth of sex-positive gear, toys, 
um, just an array of different prizes from an array of gracious donors. So if that's anything that you believe in or you want to learn more about our programming, um, you can check us out anywhere that's under Sex and Self. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Felicia Jasandi. Really appreciate the information. Good luck with your fundraiser and good luck with Sex and Self and all of that comprehensive sex education to young people across the country. Thank you so much, Maureen. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Great to have you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.